welcome to the Francis Farmer Show. Uh, this is our uh, recap episode uh, devoted to the Vancouver International Film Festival, at which uh, we at Seattle Screen Scene were uh, attending in, in force. There was five of us there at one time or another, uh, although not all at the same time and not all for very long, but still, we were there. Uh, I am Sean Gilman, and I am joined by Evan Morgan. Say hi, Evan. Hello. Yep. Hi. Uh, Nathan Douglas. Hello. Uh, Ryan Swen. Hi. And Melissa Taminga. Hello. So I think uh, there's a lot of us here, and we saw a lot of movies, so I think we'll just get right to it and uh, kind of start like we did at the... Uh, Seattle Film Festival podcasts. We'll just kind of go around in a in a circle and each talk about movies as we think of them. So, who would like to start? <laughs> Evan. <laughs> okay. Start us off. Give us a, a movie like that cool. you saw at Fifth that uh, you want to talk about. Uh, well, the movie that stood out, I think, most for me and was one that I really knew nothing. Uh, about going into the festival, which is always a, a pleasant surprise, um, was Maison de Bonheur, which is the uh, second feature of uh, Sofia Bodanovich. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Um, but yeah, she had a, a film uh, last year that played at VIP, which I did not get to see, but um, which I believe Sean and Nathan, you both uh, really liked, if I remember correctly. Um, but I really had no idea uh, what to expect going into this, and I just found it uh, exceedingly lovely. Um, it, it basically traces the life of a an older uh, Parisian woman who lives in this sort of uh, old houseman-era uh, apartment building, and um, the the director uh, basically went to to Paris to film this this woman who she had never met before, but was the uh, the mother of a, a friend of hers. And it, it really is just this portrait of this older woman's life through the objects and the the space that she lives in. Uh, the movie is shot in this like really lovely sixteen millimeter. Uh, photography that really just captures a sort of a sense of this uh, lifestyle that that feels sort of antiquated in a way or, or captured from from an earlier era and I think that the movie uh, the, the woman at the center of the movie really sort of reflects that as well she lives this sort of epicurean life and and she has these relations to the objects in her house to the, these rituals of making bread and um, going to the uh, the hair salon that she always goes to and the cafe down the street. And it's just this, this very, in some ways, like straightforward uh, document of her life. But the movie also has an interesting relationship uh, with the filmmaker and, and her role in the movie uh, sort of is clandestine in some ways. It, it's not overtly stated, but there are, are hints that crop up. And I think the overwhelming sense of, of the movie and the 
the progression uh, of the film is of the filmmaker herself sort of learning and, and taking something from the way that this woman lives her life and and sort of resolving maybe some uh, some issues in her personal life that she uh, sort of brought with her uh, to Paris. And I think it's just a really lovely uh, tribute to um, the ways in which a good, an attention to objects uh, and ritual and tradition um, provides a sort of uh, a balm uh, for for living in uh, living with trauma and and uh, yeah, I don't know. I thought it was a, an extremely beautiful and uh, endearing movie. Did you say it was a documentary or is it a, a narrative fictional? Is it, it's it a documentary. A, yeah, it's a documentary, but um, okay. I mean, it's not like a conventional documentary where it's interviewing her or really uh, providing a lot of historical background about her life. I mean, she's um, an astrologer, which the movie explores in some in some detail. But uh, there's hints that uh, I can't remember if it, if it ever comes up in the movie, but uh, the director definitely mentioned it at the screening that she was um, once the astrologer for was it Charles de Gaulle. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so there's, there's clearly like a, an interesting story uh, about her life, but um, she doesn't really explore that. And, and again, in the Q and a after the film, the, the director said that she had not wanted to push uh, too, too far into interviewing her about subjects that she didn't want to bring up herself. And, and she talked about the collaborative process by which she, developed the film uh, in tandem uh, with uh, Julianne, the, the woman, and really just let her guide what the film was going to be based on what she wanted to do on, on a given day and, and just following her life. And I think a lot of that, that stuff about her comes out in the movie without you know, having necessarily needing to know that, that background just because of the attention to detail that's paid to the, the smallest things in this, this apartment that she lives in. Hmm. Right. It's that not it's, great. it's not so much like an investigation into this woman as it is allowing her and like documenting the way that she presents herself and explains her own life, which is mm -hmm. uh, an unusual approach to documentary. Uh, I, I really love this movie, too. Uh, like you said, I, I loved her movies before. And it's such a, a deceptively simple film like it's only it's barely over an hour long it was shot what in, in on 30 rolls of film over 30 days with a bolex and all the sound uh she did she had she added after because the bolex doesn't shoot with live sound so she in the q a she talks about how she like had to invent all of her own fully work and everything and uh yeah there's there's a lot going on in in such a a simple movie mm -hmm. yeah and for I some reason uh for some reason like i uh i think i mostly saw like the simplicity it was, it's very i did like it but i didn't necessarily get much more than like this uh this sense of loveliness like there's a very nice uh feeling captured by the way in which uh the director focuses on these like objects and it's almost like a vignette based in a way in the way that it breaks things down into different categories like it focuses on the way she does her makeup or she gets her hair styled um but beyond that i didn't really 
get much more than that. Like I, I was watching a few clips uh, earlier before we, re- we recorded this, and I feel like if I revisit it, then that complexity might rise to the surface. Yeah, there's a there's a, there's a tension between like the the simplicity of the filmmaking, like it's just this woman telling you about her life, and kind of uh, the the process that went into making it, and the kind of the the thinking that went into making it. Like her, uh, uh, Bodanovich's films are they're all about uh, older women, these older generations of women, and they're ostensibly her. Uh, trying to document the way that they live their lives. Like the, her, uh, her short film trilogy is about uh, one grandmother and Never Eat Alone, uh, which is her, her first feature, is about another grandmother. And then this one is about, is about a friend's mother. And she's this filmmaker going out to try and learn about these, these older women and, uh, and in the process trying to kind of like fill in these gaps in her own life. And it's... I don't know. I, it's hard to really explain. There's just like this really poignant tendency between like the meta elements of her films, like trying to mm-hmm. recreate something and like the actuality of it and the difference between like being in the 21st century and being of an older generation. Yeah. And I think that I, I totally agree with that. And that moment in the Q and a, when she had said that she recorded all the, the sound, um, didn't record sync sound and, and basically did her own Foley track, which is very like lush and, and lovely um, uh, as a, a Foley track. But I sort of had a, a chill go down my spine when she said that because there's a way in which I think, like you're saying, Song, that she's filling in something in, in her own life from from this woman, and that in the process of of completing the film, she literally followed the same recipes that the woman made and recorded herself making the recipes. So there's this way in which just the, the practice of putting the film together, of completing the audio track is in itself a sort of way of, of living that, uh, living this woman's life and what she's learned from her sort of in, in her own, in her own life. Um, right. And there, yeah. there's, there's all sorts of, of like little moments in the film where, where you hear, uh, Budnovitz on on camera saying, you know, explaining how the interview process is going to work and how you have to answer the questions because you won't hear the questioner when you're getting interviewed. You'll just hear the answer. Or uh, when she's like telling people at a party not to look at the camera and pretend she's not there. But she then leaves those things in the film. It's like she's she's trying to remove herself from the film, but she can't help it. And then even in like the, the kind of most mysterious part of the film, it takes like a little detour with her own kind of memory of this time that she had, you know, some unexplained bad experience in France that this whole film is meant to be a kind of therapy for. So just this kind of like absent director who can't quite remove herself from the story she's trying to tell. I don't know. I, I find it like really fascinating and moving. Yeah. I definitely want to catch up with uh, her her shorts and her feature before I revisit this one in full. Like I, I, I think it was it might have been Nathan who said that that uh, that viewing those might help clarify some of the some of the parts of Maison de Bonheur. But as it is, it is uh, a very lovely experience. If it didn't grab me quite as much as as you guys. Right on. Uh, 
Nathan, you want to go next? Yeah, sure. Uh, I just want to echo just quickly what you guys were saying about, about Maison, because I was trying to think of something because you guys covered uh, it really well. I think I was just very struck by the, uh, the ritualistic the way the film embraces not just the rituals of the woman's life, but um, film itself as a ritualistic kind of object, the rhythm that it, it's got such a serene rhythm to it, even though it's a very fast moving film, it's constantly cutting to all these different uh, sites. Um, and, and I, yeah, just having witnessed um, this year and last year, like the kind of rise of Sofia Bodanovich as this, this new presence in Canadian cinema, um, you know, it's, it's tremendously exciting to see uh, just to see the kind of work she's doing because it's, it's complete, this sort of very honest, personal balanced, sculpted, um, you know, not self-indulgent uh, work that is, is very exciting. So um, I was, I was mildly dazzled by the film in, in similar ways to what, to what you guys were saying. Um, film I would love to, shout out right now is actually the first feature that I saw at the festival <laughs> feels like a million years ago, uh, which is, uh, Valerie Mercedes. hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, second feature film. It's called Mila or Mila. Uh, it's a French film premiered at Locarno uh, earlier this summer. And I believe it picked up a jury prize or special mention picked up, uh, certainly something there. Um, but, uh, this is a film that, is very, it's hard to describe because it sounds like a lot of uh, sort of typical European festival fare by description. And by that, I mean, it, it's about a, a young couple, you know, barely, not even in their 20s, apparently, uh, who essentially uh, run away from whatever their lives were and set up a home in uh, on the coast of Normandy. And uh, life is just lived from that point forward. Uh, Mila, the uh, the main character, is uh, is pregnant when we meet her, and uh, her boyfriend's trying to find work. and And I, I don't want to say too much because there is uh, there is something of a narrative that is probably best going into unspoiled. But the way that the the ups and downs of life uh, affect this couple and and uh, change them, and, and then eventually their child when he arrives, uh, is very you know it's it's a very simple but not simplistic at all um film it's 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 uh it's a sort of experiment in realism almost where um you know they're working with non-actors at least in the in the case of Mila and um and her, her son eventually uh to study the, the conditions of their lives um i guess what, the thing that really struck me the most was that in this kind of uh, survey of, you know, kind of Euro cinema, like looking at, at low income lives, you know, I think it's often easy to assume that the, the sort of the, the, the way to approach that is the kind of like handheld over the shoulder, like Dardenne's kind of, you know, um, approach wherein like every moment you are being swept up into their lives is a very visceral response. It's a very visceral approach. It's a, a constant sweeping of you and the camera into you know following them around everywhere and uh, Mila isn't like that at all it's shot almost entirely on uh, static you know uh, wide shots medium shots uh, it's sense of uh, mise-en-scene and, and color control and everything uh, the decor especially is, is um, 
astonishing and, and kind of deceptively, you know, lush for a film that would fall into this kind of realism category. Um, and it, it just, it just is so astute at uh, bringing, uh, expressing the sort of state of the, of what Mila and her, and her young family is going through uh, simply by, you know, the fluctuations of kind of uh, the color around them, whether it's like the red drapes that they use to dress up this, this abandoned house that they shack up in or um, various kind of dreamlike flights of fancy. Like it's, it's a bit like it resembles kind of a, uh, the work of a pitch upon where's the call a little bit um, in that sense. And that it very, very skillfully moves into these dreamlike, you know, interstate experiences that are completely externalized and, and are just left for you to kind of take it or leave it. There's no, there's no dreamlike transition. There's no, there's no effort at trying to express an inner and an outer state. It's all just one state observed by this very static camera um anyway it's a, it's a hypnotic film and um in the, the last half when it merges into this kind of uh, basically into a documentary um <laughs> of of the lives and before us uh it's it's uh, it's a very profoundly quiet dignified work it's 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 a film that loves uh human life and um it stayed with me all through the festival i, I saw other good films but that was the one that that kind of just set the tone for me for the rest of the festival, and, and nothing else really quite reached that level of um, like precision, I'd say. Wow, have you that seen the good. Have you seen the director's previous uh, feature? No, I haven't, and I, I wish I had. Now, um, yeah, she was not even on my radar until essentially I think earlier this spring when. Friend of the uh, the podcast, Neil Bahadur, was uh, <laughs> tweeting constantly about her previous film, Nana, <laughs> in preparation for uh, for this one, and uh, I haven't had a chance to catch up with that. So. Has anyone else had a chance to catch up with it? No, yeah, I haven't. Sounds great, though. Yeah. Yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Euro- European cinema is dead. <laughs> what if like, that's not the first or the last time we're gonna hear that? <laughs> no, no, that I, that, sound, again. that sounds really good, and I was planning to see it, but it was playing early in the morning, and I was tired. <laughs> How dare you? Hey, some, sometimes at a film festival, you gotta you gotta sleep. It's important to sleep. Uh, if you had gone to that screen, you probably would have ended up dozing anyway. <laughs> One, I, you know, I've never fallen asleep in a movie theater. What? Seriously? Oh, that's yeah. impressive. Yeah. I haven't either. Yeah. Actually, I, constantly. Yeah. I, I, I fall asleep constantly at home. Uh, watching a movie, I can barely make it through a movie at home without falling asleep, but never, never in a theater. Wow. Yeah. So, impressed. That's how the sausage gets made at the end of cinema. <laughs> <laughs> now we know. Uh, I've also never walked out of a movie. Neither have I. Yeah. No, I have haven't you, either. Have you stopped watching a screener though? Oh yeah, yeah. I've I've no. turned off movies at home, but in a in a theater is like a it's a sacred space. You you stay awake yeah. and you don't leave until it's done. Yeah. On my on my couch, there are no rules. You just. I fall asleep, turn it off, whatever. Uh, Ryan, you're up. 
Uh, I'm going to talk about perhaps the most controversial film, at, <laughs> at, at least among uh -oh. this group, Kaniba. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's Kaniba. It's the latest film by uh, Lucien Casting-Taylor and Verena Paravel, uh, two filmmakers at the Harvard Sensory Ethnography Lab. Um, and I was very eager to check out uh, this particular film uh, because I, over the summer, I viewed a couple of the films from the SEL, including their, uh, including their previous joint effort, Leviathan, which made, uh, which garnered a lot of attention and acclaim uh, when it came out in 2012. And so that was a, like a GoPro camera led exploration of like the fishing industry and it's and like that had all these just insane uh, camera moves and focus on these very small different parts of of the ship and in contrast Kaniba is composed I think probably 75% of close-ups on on one of two faces so the film as a documentary uh, following, or its, the, its subject is Issei Sagawa, uh, who in 1981 uh, murdered and uh, ate a, a classmate in Paris. Um, and he was, he was found uh, unfit for trial because of insanity. And in 1984, he was let loose and returned to Japan. And now he's, mm. and so that was, that was in 1981. He was 32 at the time. And now he's uh, in his mid sixties and he, he's suffering from many health problems. And he's mostly confined to his apartment with his, uh, with his brother um, as, as his sole caretaker. And the film at the start says that it, uh, that it makes no no claims to legitimize or or even valorize the the crime, and instead it goes for like something much more odd. Like in the way it uses these close-ups, uh, a lot a lot of it is sort of a confession on on Sagawa's part. Um, like he he makes no he he doesn't attempt to cover up his cannibalistic tendencies at all. Uh, and on the whole, like it's a very harrowing experience, um, which is given this very odd sense of almost beauty, the way it uses these like very unflattering, uh, very revealing close-ups on the face. Like it explores um, pretty much every part of his face and especially his brother's face and his brother I think about two-thirds the way through the film uh, he's also revealed to have his own uh, very perverse tendencies um, involving barbed wire flames and other such uh, <laughs> masochistic uh, masochistic tendencies all focused on his on his upper right arm for for some reason um, but the way in which that uh, the the filmmakers like draw this very odd sense of brotherhood 
in, uh, between Sagawa and his brother. Um, and just the sustained focus is just really striking. And besides uh, some key cutaways to a uh, to some old home home movies of Sagawa and his brother, which don't humanize them so much more as like force the viewer to have some sort of reckoning with these images of these of these young boys uh, with these old men who behave uh, or have behaved and still kind of behave somewhat monstrously. Uh, besides that, a uh, cutaway to uh, a porn film that Sagawa shot as a result of his uh, infamy in Japan and a manga that he made, he drew, wrote and drew himself of this, of his actions. Um, besides that, it's just the, it's just the focus on, on the face. And for some reason, I just found it very harrowing, but also um, oddly moving. Hmm. <laughs> 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 yeah, I. <laughs> I also found it harrowing, I guess, but also. Um, I, I guess I, I feel like I it, it was harrowing, but not in an illuminating way. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I was still struggling to figure out what exactly the filmmakers were going for. I was just reading again their uh, little blurb. Um, and they they say about the film, rather than taking cover behind facile, outra facile outrage or creating a masquerade out of human humanity's voyeuristic attraction to the grotesque, we try to treat cannibalistic desire and acts with the unnerving gravity they deserve. And I guess what I mostly came away with was a kind of voyeurism and um, just a grotesqueness that I it didn't really seem to me um, to be in any way revealing about uh, necessarily about what it means to be human necessarily. And then I guess I was struggling also to understand what kind of gravity I was meant to get to um, that was beyond, again, something that was just so outside the norm. I mean, I, I got the sense that there was some sense that they were trying to focus on the these really bizarre brothers in such a way that would help reveal something about some larger sense of desire that is related to cannibalism um, and then something about the way that we are as human beings. But all I felt was a, a, a distance um, from everything that was really going on at the same time that my I felt literally mashed up against the, the faces um, of the brothers. And um, a lot of the time, too, I mean, you mentioned that it is mostly an extreme kind of close-up, but also very blurred half the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is completely out of focus almost, too. So, which in a sense maybe is saying, well, you try to get, you know, so close to it, try to understand it, but you can't really ultimately understand it. So in a way, I felt like it was it was both kind of, pushing me up against it, but then unwilling to let me really see what was happening. So again, it was just kind of a, a baffling sort of experience that was also, I, I just felt really disgusted by it. And <laughs> I'm not really that a squeamish person, but again, I, I need to know why 
why the filmmakers are, are doing this. And, and again, what they kind of describe, I didn't really get any sense of um, that there was any kind of gravity there. And, and I think also um, when, by the time we get to the end, I mean, you get the sense that these, these men are just completely depraved. There really isn't any sense that they, either one of them feel any, I mean, it's a kind of confession, but it almost feels like a fetishistic kind of confession where they're, they themselves are kind of reveling in what they are on, on some level. And then at the end, there's this moment where I think it's supposed to be a kind of moment of grace um, for one of them. Mm -hmm. But to me, it just felt very um, exploitative and particularly, be and it had to do with a woman at the end. And so particularly yeah. because we've seen these horrific images of women, um, you know, in the manga particularly. Um, and then at the end, you get this woman who is being, very kind. It, it felt, um, it felt really cheap to me or something. It just felt again, kind of very exploitative. So I, yeah, I don't, I didn't really know what to do with it. <laughs> yeah. Like and I just, the, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, the, okay. Uh, yeah. That le the last two scenes with, with that woman uh, as a, as a maid that did throw me initially. Um, it, I definitely think that it's, that like going to your larger point about like whether it's uh, like the purpose, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like I think that a lot of the key is like their advanced age and like their like how clearly uh, Sagawa has these like uh, these strong health problems. Like and and yet he has this. He still has this. Uh, there's still this very clear sense that he's aware of everything that's going on. Like he's in a sense posing for the camera as much as he can sure. pose if if you're like just like staring into the into the lens or sometimes like off off screen. Um, so like there there's the, always this push and pull between between that sense of exploitation and that sense of of like agency that mm -hmm that Sagawa and his brother have, like, they, um, and it's, it's clear that they're unapologetic, uh, Sagawa especially, mm -hmm. um, and yet the way in which the close-ups work for me is as a kind of, like, exposing of their, of their flaws. Like, for mm -hmm. instance, the, sometimes it will stay on a particular face while the other is speaking, like, trying to justify um, their own actions like and a lot of it functions a lot of it is uh, reaction shots of one person reacting to the other person's conversation um, mm -hmm. the the filmmakers uh, are never heard and and so yeah, there's think, almost no context really except mm -hmm. for that very beginning where you get the news yeah. items essentially yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah and so the filmmakers are never heard and all you can really get Besides those uh, opening, besides the opening uh, news audio, is from them, and it's always, I feel like it's almost always brought into question by the the especially the out of focus shots. Mm -hmm. Like they they don't change the focus at all for for each shot. So like as the as the brothers move in and out of this very shallow focus, like they get more and more in and more and more out of or mostly more and more out of focus and that always that felt like a very 
like if not if not a critique then a question for sure a question of about uh, like, them yes mean, about or? their about their perceptions mm -hmm. of themselves mm -hmm. it just felt gimmicky to me <laughs> like, yeah i like that just it's a it's a ugly film about ugly people and about ugliness and it's just deeply unpleasant to watch yeah i mean i was kind of thinking about that because i i think that i mean there is something to the cinema showing maybe the dark darkest aspects of humanity but i think i mean there has to be some element of connection um, not necessarily sympathy but something that i kind of recognize or or something that makes me kind of care and i didn't i don't i didn't care about these men at all i mean i didn't not even care in the sense of that i feel compassion for them but care in the sense that i want to know what's going to happen to them like i i don't i didn't the film the film didn't get me there it just felt like again to me that it, it felt fetishistic it, um, it didn't seem to have any interest in them as people or as humans or as crazy humans. Like, it's just, yeah. it's entirely surface. Right. And partly that was, I mean, because because of the close-ups in a way that you don't really, they almost, they almost, they almost feel like aliens. Yeah. Because you never get a sense of this larger, yeah, humanity, I guess except for when they're young boys, but those seem so far removed. Well, that's yeah, an interesting I, point. Oh, go ahead. I, I do wonder if it plays better on, uh, on a screener, on a, on a TV, than, <laughs> yeah. than in yeah. a theater, yeah. where, it's, where it's so, where like the images are so overwhelming. And I mean, yeah. if, you're not, if you're not into it, it's really oppressive mm -hmm. and, and, and gross and uncomfortable. And, yeah, I, like I said, I, I never have walked out of a movie, but mm -hmm. uh, I almost fell asleep <laughs> yeah. in this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is more. Uh, it is a considerably more uh, meditative than you would expect from a documentary about a cannibal. Um, but nevertheless, the I think I did get that sense of connection from just the way in which the like the brothers interact, like the, the first line of dialogue is of uh, the brother telling Sagawa to to like eat his food and like to like you you missed you missed the you missed a little bit and things like that and I think they have like this recognition of like the depraved in each of them has this odd sense of empathy that I guess I was sort of uh, moved by. Hmm. Right on. Well, I don't think you're alone, Ryan. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, your your turn, Melissa. Change to a, a more pleasant okay. subject. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I won't stand to something more pleasant. Um, <clears throat> well, I did only see three films. Um, uh, Kaniba was the last one unfortunately. <laughs> but um, the first one I saw, I absolutely loved. And um, I think this is probably going to be end up being one of my favorite films of the year, too. So um, this one is 24 Frames by Abbas Kiarostami. Um, 
And most of you have seen this one, I think, or all of you have seen this one, perhaps. I haven't seen it. Okay. Um, so this is um, his last film, of course. Um, and it's, I guess, an experimental film of, of sorts, although in some ways you could probably call all of his films that. Um, but it is essentially 24, uh, four and a half minute segments, which each are um, inhabiting a, a kind of fixed frame that depict landscapes and animals and a kind of a natural world. Although the very first frame is this um, digitized reproduction of Bruegel's Hunters in the Snow, <clears throat> that painting. And so that's what it, it begins with. Um, and, and then uh, we have this um, opening where Kerastami um, describes kind of what his, his project is. Um, you get this epigraph in the beginning where he says, I always wonder to what extent the artist aims to depict the reality of a scene. Painters capture only one frame of reality and nothing before or after it. For 24 frames, I started with a famous painting, but then switched to photos I had taken through the years. I included about four and a half minutes of what I imagined might have taken place before or after each image that I captured. Um, and I really think that this is in so many ways sort of a perfect last film, if there had to be a last film um, for Kiriostomy. Um, it's, it's a film that I think it is both about the cinematic art in the same way that many of his other films like Certified Copy or Close Up uh, are about cinema, but also a moving piece of cinema in itself. I think something that challenges our notion of cinema, both sort of reinforcing what it is and what it does, um, and then also enlarging what it is and what it does. It's, um, as the title would suggest, it's a, a film about framing and about how framing changes our perspective or our viewpoint, making us think about how the particular framing of something is both uh, a kind of prison in that we're forced to see just with what's in within that frame, and then also how the framing of something expands our vision because we're forced to both look at things that are there within the frame more closely, but also because we are constantly thinking about what is outside of the frame or what might be coming. And it's, it's just such a basic cinematic uh, concept um, that's that what is inside the frame highlights the importance of what's outside the frame. So you have the both the on-screen and the off-screen space kind of jostling together in this conflicting unity in a way, this kind of tension uh, that are both in a way fighting for our attention. And I think really makes us alive to vision really I mean the limits of what we can see and then also the depth of what we can see uh, if only we we would look we look um, or look more closely and then um, I was also really struck by kind of relating to that off screen and on sp uh, screen space that there's this sense of threat um, over the film in, in part because you begin with hunters in the snow and you get um, this idea of guns or violence in some way. Um, but then there's that that threat is coupled with this sleep-inducing kind of days, which I think, Nathan, when you watched it, you dozed off a few times, which is maybe oh, appropriate for curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but because partly because we're watching is is so thoroughly mundane in a way. I mean, we're, we're just the static frame and it's just the things within the frame that are moving. And But we're also kind of lulled by these the sounds and the natural world in front of us, but as simultaneously as we're being kind of lulled by those things, also worried about what's off screen. Um, and then we see these moments where that sense of threat uh, of violence is actually justified. There are these couple of moments of these sudden bursts of violence, but then other moments when that sense of threat is not 
fulfilled at all. Um, and then uh, also one other thing I was thinking about is that the film seems to me also an interesting reflection on the way that sleep and death look so much like each other. There are uh, a few moments where you see something on the screen that you believe perhaps is dead, um, partly because we've seen other dead things in other frames, but then that thing will breathe and it's just been resting or sleeping or will move. Um, and uh, so I, I guess I was just thinking to um, reflecting on the way that, that Kirostomy him, himself has talked about how he likes the idea of um, dreaming and sleep being paired with cinema and cinematic art. Um, he said um, in one interview that I absolutely don't like the films in which filmmakers take their viewers hostage and provoke them. I prefer the films that put their audience to sleep in the theater. Uh, I think those films are kind enough to allow you a nice nap. Uh, some films have made me doze off in the theater, but the same films have made me stay awake at night, wake up thinking about them in the morning, and I keep on thinking about them for weeks. And I kind of think this is sort of the film that you could easily, very easily sleep through. And in fact, um, I don't know if I should give it away, but the last frame has sleeping in it. And it, it seems to me that it's about sleeping and cinema, and that it's paired in a very, um, really lovely way that I found incredibly moving in partly because of the film itself, but also because of the knowledge that this was Cariostomy's last film. Um, and you just kind of think about him sleeping and death and the dream of cinema that he's given us. Um, and so it, I just, this film was so moving, but also challenging in many ways. I mean, I really kind of wish I had brought some hard candy to suck on <laughs> a few times too, because I found myself also getting sleepy, even though, again, I've never fallen asleep in the theater. Um, but there was something about that, that I, it felt like part of the essential nature of the, the experience anyway. Um, so I loved this movie so much. Um, what about the rest of you guys? Well, I'm really annoyed that I didn't get to see it now. But. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, especially on the big, I think you kind of have to see it on the big screen too, because it, keeping you in your seat in a way is, is important and seeing it in, you know, in the full screen too. Yeah, Janice Films is releasing it. So, so it should be coming to Criterion and probably to, probably to uh, Sif Uptown, I'm guessing. Nice. Yeah. Well, it's a film center. I would love to see it again. Um, maybe film center. <laughs> you can't fall asleep in that theater. Yeah, so. <laughs> uh, no, I I really like this this movie too. It's so it's so much fun, and it's a fun movie to kind of think about and to kind of catalog all the the kind of riffs that that Karastami does with like frames and with uh, kind of yeah. similar plot elements in between uh, the different frames. Uh, yeah, it's it, uh, I wrote a bit about it, but I kind of like barely scratched the surface. Uh, it was like the the only time, one of the few times at at VIF that I like had to like grab my notebook out and start writing stuff because it was like inspiring yeah. so many thoughts. Yeah. Um, but it's right. yeah, it's, it's interesting for such a still film, right? Because yeah. there like there's almost nothing happening, but it it is that that film that you say that just inspires so much thinking 
yeah I, I guess about thematically and also about cinema itself and yeah and just like little stuff like the 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 like little narrative elements within the frames that kind of yeah. repeat mm -hmm. and rhyme yeah as as it goes on yeah. like there's this like one crow that is always like a, a dick to all the other crows <laughs> in like multiple <laughs> frames and i and i like to think that it was like the same yeah. crow like invading all of these other stories just to like push them yeah. off the defense rail and and just mm -hmm. these kind of riffs about like there's like frames within frames and and what takes place in the center and there's like cows that like don't want to get up there's lots of animals that that just want to stay still mm -hmm. but all of like the rest of the animals are walking are walking past yeah. out of the frame and mm -hmm. there's like the one obstinate cow that doesn't want to leave and but the tide's coming in and he's going to drown and eventually it like blows yeah so, so they're they're full of like these little stories that are not actual stories because they're nature ostensibly right. but we you know we put narratives on onto them but then on the other hand like most of the animals in the film are like digital creations right They're not actual <laughs> right. animals so it's yeah it's just like a really just a fascinating film and really fun to think about so yeah yeah it is really uh it is really interesting and i must confess uh i was I was uh, up and down throughout the whole thing um, <laughs> in the sense that a lot of the film reminded me of, uh, of Chantal Ackerman's No Home movie, particularly in the way that I was concerned for a lot of 24 frames that it, it seemed to me as like a very, a very minor work that was thrust by circumstance uh, into becoming, carrying the burden of, of a capital L last film. Um, mm. And kind of like, no home movie it felt to me like a, a you know like a repository of just sort of like scribbled down ideas on napkins and things and and, and I, I had I struggled to sort of see the the coherent uh reason for the for the whole but all that said i was absolutely destroyed by the essentially the last three frames the last like, frame. yeah well the last frame in particular but but you know yeah. frame i think 22 23 24 all, all three of them were just such such incredibly masterful uh, moments, um, but the last in particular, it just it brought back all of this kind of, you know, this 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 feeling that had been kind of lying quiet for the entire film of, of realizing that yeah, we're never going to get another Kirsten Rami film, uh, and that last frame I think is it just reminded me. I was so shocked actually. I don't want I don't want to spoil it either because it's such a surprise, but the last frame shocked me with with as every character i mean i've seen does this at some point uh the, there's a the youthfulness of of his vision yeah. uh, the youthfulness of his mm -hmm. curiosity because mm -hmm. it's it's an image that is based entirely within you know the 21st century uh film industry like it's something that could be pulled out of anyone's you know home office like yesterday and yeah. it, I've never seen a filmmaker just approach something like that, something that's so mundane, especially for like an independent filmmaker to watch this and sort of see, see themselves on screen. Like this, it's an image that, that is just so mundane and normal to, to um, I think anyone who's creative, uh, you know, has to use Adobe Suite. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it, it, just the idea that he kind of almost consecrates it. He kind of uh, charges it with this, these very mundane elements with, with such beauty and mystery and and it's just it's an absolutely spectacular 
moment to to end on and uh, in some ways i wish the rest of the film was a little bit more interested in kind of building up to that in more specific ways um mm. and i know there's debate about the music and whether the music really reflects kirstrami's vision i think there's quite a bit of uh questions about that uh but it is that image itself i will i will take with me for the rest of my life and and just i'm really just you know there's so many reasons to miss him but just to have that sense of like his his curiosity that is truly youthful and in, in that it's always looking for something new and something precious uh he found that everywhere and and so you know i will yeah i'm, I'm so glad i managed to catch it at this uh festival i don't know when i think of yeah. abbas kirstami i think of andrew lloyd weber so <laughs> I know that final song I just like got all emotional and I'm like why am I getting emotional at an Andrew Lloyd Webber song oh, we can do that <laughs> they really are you know one one is in cinema the other in musical theater but they're basically the same yeah <laughs> <laughs> so good all right Sean all right uh, I guess uh, I will I will bring up Claire's camera. <laughs> I was amazed that we got this far, actually. <laughs> uh, this is uh, one of one of three Hong Sang Soo movies from this year. Uh, I think apparently he's he's shot another one, but it probably won't come out before uh, Berlin would be my guess. Uh, this is the one that he shot at Cannes in 2016 uh, over six days. Uh, during the festival. Uh, it stars uh, Kim Min-hee and uh, Isabelle Huppert. And uh, the plot is uh, basically uh, Kim gets fired from her job as like the assistant to a film buyer who's there to promote a movie uh, for a director. Uh, she doesn't know why she's been fired, but we quickly learn it's because uh, the director has told her boss that uh, he got drunk and slept with Kim, uh, so the boss fired her because the boss is uh, in a relationship with the director. And then Isabella Pear shows up and she meets the director and the boss and eventually Kim, and somehow Kim gets her job back. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but we don't exactly know why or when. and. Uh, I saw I saw both screenings of this at the festival, and and Evan, you and I saw it earlier this year, and we uh, we talked about it and and the day after on the site. Uh, I've thought way too much about the plot of this movie. <laughs> uh, I'm just I'm I I was like obsessed with like trying to figure out what exactly happened when. Uh, uh, for a while, I was thinking that there were like multiple multiple timelines or multiple like universes that the film took place in, but then they they intersected in a weird way. Um, now, uh, my my latest theory is that Isabella Pear is a time traveler who uh, <laughs> initially meets the the three Koreans and and finds that Kim is very unhappy for having been fired. So she goes back in time and tries to change things so that Kim will get her job back. And that's and that's what happens. Um, I, I like I, it. I don't know. It's 
it, this this is another movie like like Maison de Bonheur that's that's really really short, but it's got a lot of a lot of stuff going on in it. Uh, but I don't know that it is as 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 good like as uh, as uh, yourself and yours or on the beach at night alone, which I think are. Uh, the best uh, movies Hong's done in the last year and a half or so, but, <laughs> but this is like an, this this movie is so much fun that it's just it's so easy to watch. It's 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 funny. It's it's dark. It's weird. I I don't know. I I'm like addicted to Claire's camera, even though I don't think it's <laughs> one of his best movies. It might not be even like in my. It's not in my top five Hong Sang Soo films, but I don't know. I can't I can't let it go. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I gotta say, I, I mean, I liked the movie when, when we saw it earlier this year, uh, for sure. I think I even I liked it more than uh, the day after the other film that he had that played at uh, Cannes, but it did definitely feel very minor uh, to me. But I gotta say, the much of the pleasure that I took from revisiting it at VIP was having talked to you beforehand, Sean, and sitting next to you. I felt like I was watching the movie through your eyes, uh, <laughs> trying to sort of, like, decipher it and... And uh, and follow the uh, multiple Kims theory, the multiple who pairs theory. The, the uh, now I gotta watch it again with the uh, the, the many the, uh, Claire. <laughs> yeah, with the Claire as time traveler uh, who uses that like little port underneath the uh, street above the beach uh, yeah. to time travel theory. So um, yeah, I mean I I think it. Uh, it's it's minor Hong probably, but it just goes to show how uh, sort of infinite his his universe is these days. It's something that feels so offhanded and and uh, minor and and derived just sort of entirely from the chance of of what was there to shoot uh, on on the day that he was shooting in Cannes um, can seem so um, expansive and uh, almost uh, sort of a world unto itself is. Uh, yeah, just proof of how unique Hong's Hong style is at this point. Yeah, the the yes. scenes the scenes with uh, with Uper and and Kim are are so much fun. Like the two of them mm-hmm. are just are are, are, mm-hmm. are so cute interacting together, and they're so friendly and so happy to just have met another person that they can talk to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and the, like the contrast of that with the uh, like the rooftop scene where the director yells at, at Kim for wearing uh, jean shorts, hot pants, <laughs> hot pants, <laughs> hot pants. Uh, which is just it's it's so cruel and so and so brutal and so uh, like such a it's like a Hong cliche. It's like uh, just this terrible man being terrible to mm-hmm. to our hero. <laughs> Uh, the the contrast between like the sweetness and then the sunniness of that scene with with just this this kind of gross brutality, uh, and the way that those two are never really reconciled, like that that conflict is never satisfactorily solved. We just we just cut from this horribly traumatic scene to to Kim and Hooper hanging out at some other time or place or universe. And then, like the movie ends, and Kim has her job. It's it's very like disconcerting this this one scene because if you took that scene out, the movie would pretty much make sense. But mm. there's this one scene, and 
like Kim's dating Mark Parenson and she's wearing jean shorts and <laughs> none of it makes it doesn't it's yeah it's like the I don't know it's like the 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 piece of grit in the in the oyster that is making the pearl of the time travel theory I guess I don't know <laughs> it really is such a fun film but it, yeah I mean it feels like a confection just watching it um, I only saw it once, but just it was such a delight to watch it too. But then it is, as you say, you kind of you're kind of left with these these gritty bits or things that you kind of keep mulling over. Um, but I wanted to comment too on who I mean, Huppert is she? She's she's so funny. I mean, she. I really feel like she uh, she really has some comedic chops. I mean, her. The reaction shots and the her the, the stillness. I mean that the first moment when she um, meets the director um, at that cafe and they are kind of have this conversation at two different tables and then they're like, hey, we should sit together and then they're just sitting there and they don't really know what to say to each other. <laughs> it's just like little moments like that where I just feel like she plays it so perfectly. It's just this this joy of watching this kind of consummate actress who can do. You, you know the most kind of harrowing type roles but also just be so so funny i i i love those scenes with with uber and the director and and both times yeah. at at the festival i was like the only person laughing all through those so right. he's like he's, he's trying to hit on her but getting her to read like a, yeah. a margaret duras yeah yeah it was interesting uh, I'd, I'd revisited uh, in another country a few weeks before uh, seeing Claire's camera for a second time and like she actually does play like I think very different characters but she um, mm. like different kinds of characters because in, in another country she is like this she does have this like indomitable like sort of personality but in Claire's camera like she's uh, like the like the the lightest happiest person yeah. and but she, like she she manages to get so much uh so much feeling and so much comedy out of these two very different uh personas mm -hmm. and it's, mm -hmm. it's it's wonderful to watch really mm -hmm. yeah and kim is so good too i mean she's she, i was just gonna say yeah, she, she's she's great, great in all all four of the movies she's made with hong but and this is this is the lightest of them all by far, but uh, there she's got a lot going on, even in like these English language scenes where she's not really confident in in the language, or her character is not really confident in the language. But she just gives these like sly looks that, you know, maybe there is more to her than she's letting on. Maybe she's not so innocent. I don't I don't know. Well, I think you really see that in that scene. Um where she takes Huppert up to the apartment that she's staying at with uh, like the other Koreans who mm. uh, are like film festival underling people. They make, uh, her, they make her a Korean meal. Yeah, to make yeah. her a Korean <laughs> yeah. meal, which we don't see. Uh, but, uh, you know, she in that scene, she's switching back and forth between the very, I don't know that demure is the right word, but she's she's constantly smiling when she's talking to Huppert in English and, and very sort of... Um, uh, sprightly, I, I guess, and and when she switches back to Korean to talk to the Koreans in that she in that scene, 
uh, you know, they're talking about the the director, and suddenly it sort of dawns on her, uh, depending on how you read the the plot uh, of the movie, that she's figured out why her boss uh, may have fired her or is uh, suspicious of her, and you you suddenly I think see her uh, sort of more calculating and and less um, less bright, and I think that that scene opened up a lot. Uh, of her character for me, the, watching it a second time, um, because I do mm. think it it shows her switching between those two performance styles as a character um, mm-hmm. in that one in that one shot, really, um, which is interesting. It's a really great scene. Yeah, yeah. And there's another uh, there's another uh, great Han dog uh, in the form of like a like a massive gray dog that like compare like pets and it's it's, yeah it's there's just so much to love in Claire's camera like um it I think it might be technically my least favorite Han I've seen and I still like kind of like really love it which like I'm just like so enamored with Han at this point like halfway through his filmography (laughs) yeah I mean obviously I could talk about Claire's camera for hours um but we should not do that uh we should move on uh before we do that does anyone want to take a short break sure just just me mm-hmm. yeah, yeah let's, yeah. let's yeah. short break and then we'll go around again and and that should probably be enough yeah okay <laughs> all right, <laughs> all right. just realized I, I, I picked the last movie you'd seen, Melissa. So now you don't have one. I know. That's all right. I, I'll just listen and, and, uh, and then. It's perfect. You, you, uh, a little shorter than we thought it was going to be. You, 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 should, you should bring up Claire's camera again. We can talk about that. <laughs> we should, we should just have on. a... The alternate universe where we haven't yet talked about Claire's camera. <laughs> That's right. We should have a just a 2017 Hong uh, special <laughs> episode. There Let's you make go. one more movie for us. We've covered them all. <laughs> I mean, I had I didn't even get into Claire's camera, and I feel like I could talk about it. If you can. If you've seen like at least three or four other Hongs, then maybe. No, I, I've seen the film several times through you guys. So. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I knew it was going to happen as soon as I saw them, but I'm getting really depressed by all the takes coming out of New York about how the day after is like, Oh, what is that? The one, the one true Hong film. I really like, I'm I'm still like, I'm so eager to rewatch it, but like I, I totally adored, uh, on the beach at night alone. Yeah. Um, so that was an interesting uh, disconnect, sort of, or I'm not sure exactly what to call it. Uh, yeah, it's it's more European. I, I don't I, I don't get that. <laughs> I don't think it's 
very European. The day after? Yeah. No, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely get what you were saying on that, Sean. But yeah, yeah, it's like more, uh, more straightforward. Yeah, it's a more, Structure. it's a more typical European art film. Is there a link for that floating around out there? Yeah. What's that? It's out. Is, it, is there a link for that one floating around? I don't know. I don't think so. I've yeah, I haven't seen anything. No, I, I think I have them both. On really? the beach and the day after. Or, I'm on, or the beach. on the beach and, yeah, and the day after. I think it's out too, I think. I think it's online, but it doesn't have English subtitles. Oh, yet. no, you're right. It's, uh, yourself, uh, it's yourself and yours that's out. I need yourself and yours. Like, I, I, I'm so excited to see that again. Yeah, that's on, that's on the torrents. The torrents, which... The torrents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not the day after, but on the beach mm. and yourself and yours. Yourself and yours is... Uh, yourself and yours is the movie everybody seems to think the day after is. <laughs> As in being, like, the best Hong. Oh. Maybe it might be. Yeah, it's great. Well, I mean, Oki's movie is still the best song, but your song is <laughs> Hill of Freedom. But Hill of Freedom is great. Hill of Freedom is great. Yeah. Uh, I don't yeah. know. It's just the the idea that Hong is like made a serious movie now because uh, it's you know in, in black and white and uh, a character talks about religion. I, I mean, it. come on. The real reason all the people in New York really love it is because everyone else was kind of tepid on it. So it was like a, a chance to uh, reclaim it. I feel like that's. I think that was a reaction coming out of Cannes, too. Was that... Well, people were starting to reclaim that Cannes. Yeah. I mean, Miriam Miriam Bale was on it right from Cannes but mm. the day after being great. And maybe everyone in New York is just kind of aping, following her lead. But. I'm I'm cu I'm curious about uh like I think he said he shot his next one in like three days, nice. uh which is <laughs> which is interesting to hear like obviously like all those films are pretty quick but this one seems especially quick. Yeah, that that seems very quick. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> even even for Hong, maybe it's mm -hmm. short. Yeah. It's probably very short. All right, we're going to be here all night. Let's uh, yeah. <laughs> talk about Hong all night. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just unrecorded. Just leave it yeah. unrecorded. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, let's let's continue. Uh, Evan, what else do you want to talk about? Um, well, since I talked about a movie I really liked uh, last time, uh, and I haven't gotten the chance to see Kaniba, so I couldn't hate on that one. Um, <laughs> I'd really like to just call out the how absolutely putrid and terrible uh, Ruben Oslin's Palm Door winning The Square <laughs> is. Um, this was my last oh, festival, actually. Oh, dear. So, <laughs> so like... Uh, like Melissa, I left the festival uh, on on quite a uh, sour note. Um, I, I sort of, I guess I should admit that I went in somewhat with uh, Knives Out. I was not uh, a huge fan of uh, Force Majeure, uh, Austin's prior movie, but I, I didn't hate it by any means. But uh, The Square, which uh, tells the 
Well, I don't know that I can, I can really say it tells a story. It's a series of um, thinly sketched vignettes uh, about the fundamental uh, sort of foppishness and uh, emptiness of the art world. It follows uh, one uh, middle-aged art director uh, who runs a... Uh, a large museum um, in Sweden uh, as his life sort of falls apart, uh, breaking bad style after he makes one mistake and uh, then sort of gets sucked down a vortex of uh, other mistakes. But really it's just uh, an excuse for Oslin to trot out his uh, like utter antipathy for the human race uh, people <laughs> Uh, animals, anything that really is alive is is in Ruben Oslin's <laughs> uh, Oslin's crosshairs in this movie, and um, yeah, I mean it's shot in his uh, very cold Hanukkah esque style. I think Sean, you had or at some point in the festival uh, mentioned. I think it was an Amy, Amy Taubin uh, comment that she had made about all these sons of Hanukkah running around who are now the mm supposed uh, bastions of European cinema, and Osland is, is nothing if not uh, a son of Hanukkah. He just loves to set up these uh, cruel situations uh, that he clearly finds uh, very funny, and I just found the entire movie uh, utterly painful. I can't remember a movie that I had seen where the audience was laughing so frequently and I like not even cracked a smile the entire time. I just sat there stone-faced as everyone around me was cackling <laughs> at the bullshit. I've, I've had that experience at Sif. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I'm sure this will be very well to, uh, when it plays here uh, in 2029. But uh, yeah. Uh, I, I don't think I have much more to say about it, but it, it'll play at SIF next year. It's a it's a Palm Door winner. We always play the previous year's Palm Door winner. <laughs> the new one a year later is getting <laughs> yeah. crowned. I mean, it's it's getting distribution, like or it has distribution. It might come out this year. Probably no. I uh, I'm not seeing it again. Is the most <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I guess if, like other things that, that I could point out about it, uh, it's like grossly uh, offensive in its uh, depictions of women and all. I mean, all people really, but particularly people that Oslin thinks uh, are not pretty uh, or you know, sort of uh, Swedish-looking, uh, <laughs> like that. Uh, it contains a very long sequence, which if you've seen any images or, or frames uh, from the film where a performance artist runs around a sort of gala dinner as an ape uh, for, I don't know, it felt like 25 minutes or something like that. It's probably not that long. Uh, just terrorizing a bunch of, of these uh, you know, uh, these white uh, artist types, and isn't it, you know, just so so amazing to see these these artists confronted with, uh, and these, these donors to this art museum confronted with uh, something so bestial. Uh, yeah, I don't know. This movie was, was not enjoyable. Uh, yeah, I, th no, I, think, I, I think it was Amy Taubin in, uh, in one of the Film Comment Can podcasts who said that. Mm -hmm. uh, my my own experience at the festival with a, a 
a child of, of Michael Haneke was uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer by Yorgos Lanthimos, mm-hmm. which uh, mm-hmm. I found not only uh, to be like really mean-spirited, like you're saying, for the square, but mm-hmm. also incredibly dumb. Uh, would you say the same about the square? I mean, I don't think Lanthimos has a, uh, a monopoly on, on uh, dumb European films that fit this year. Uh, Oslo <laughs> certainly uh, is throwing his weight around in the ring. So, yes, it's incredibly dumb. I, almost unspeakably dumb. I, I think I tweeted after the movie was over that my eyes rolled so far back into my head I had detached retinas. Like the yes. <laughs> just unbearably self... Uh, I don't know. It, it finds itself incredibly funny and, and incisive, and there's nothing dumber than watching a dumb person act smart, and that's very much what this uh, this movie is. What What do you think the appeal of these movies are? Why Why do they have a following? Because I am am baffled. <laughs> I mean, you're clearly asking the wrong person. Because <laughs> <laughs> no I mean, because there there was like a lot of like positive reactions to Killing of a Sacred Deer. <laughs> which I mm-hmm. do not get at all because like, it's incredibly, like I said, it's, it's dumb and it's mean spirited and it's, and it's completely you know, like phony. It's just a, a contrived build up to this like one moment of, of, you know, supposedly like transgressive absurdity. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, I thought the reactions were a lot more uh, muted than, say for for the lobster or even for the square like they seemed like very tepid compared to some of the other uh sons of haneke uh films well from even this year. like just in the audience that i was with oh okay okay seemed to like think it really funny uh, i mean i, I will give Oslin this vancouver like, people laugh at everything that makes them uncomfortable Okay. Nathan, come spend some time in Seattle, okay? Like, I maybe it's a West Coast thing. <laughs> maybe it is. That's right. Maybe it's the, fur- the further down you go on the coast. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I will give Austin this. Like, the square, it has a, a distinct look uh, that... And, and Austin does have some, uh, I think, ability to set things up uh, visually. He, he tends to stay far back. Um, which allows him to set up some some sort of visual uh, punchlines. I don't think any of them really land. I, I guess I don't entirely begrudge people for laughing at, at parts of this movie that are at least intending to be funny, but Oslin has that just awful tendency of a lot of these filmmakers, I think, to constantly set himself up to be let off the hook. And so he'll he'll do something that's just really atrocious or as you said, Sean, mean-spirited. And then he constantly sort of has this out of, you know, that he's critiquing it while he's laughing at it. uh, But at the same time, like, all you're really left with is just sort of the cruel, the cruelty of it. And I think, I think, frankly, a lot of people get duped by it. And and the movie sets itself up so that you can take it uh, both ways when, when really, I think, at its core, it's just, it's just mean and, and, Frankly, not very funny. Do you think that uh, that these guys making making what are more or less intended to be comedies are uh, more or less disingenuous than than Haneke, who at least is like serious about his meanness? Well, did anyone see Happy End? I didn't see it, but I no. heard it just like described as a, a comedy. Uh, so maybe they've influenced him now. It's kind of going full circle. <laughs> 
I've just heard that it's a that's a stealth sequel to Amor. But other than yeah. that, I haven't heard much. Yeah, I mean, Amor is not a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> and and like Keshe could have been a comedy, but it was not. Yeah, it was like too, he's like too self serious to be a to be comic, whereas like Lanthimos and it sounds like Austin don't even have that going for them. <laughs> I don't know. I I hate all these guys. European cinema. Is <laughs> we need a counter for that. That's the second time now. I think. <laughs> Let's see. Le European. Uh, Cinema made by straight men is dead. How about that? Yeah, that. I mean, uh, 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 Terrence Davies, Claire Denis. Uh, yeah, I mean. Barda. There you go. <laughs> Les Grisbeck. Mia Hansen. Yeah. I mean, Sean, that's oh. maybe the theory you need to run with. Yeah. <laughs> straight male Asiasi. European cinema. <laughs> yeah. We'll make an exception for Olivia's face. Yeah. All right. Uh, mo moving on. Uh, Nathan. Yeah, I'm trying to decide what to talk about because uh, as the only Canadian on the podcast, I feel duty-bound almost to regale <laughs> the Seattle listeners with uh, all the Canadian films that are never going to play there. Um, yeah. Uh, is anyone going to talk about the Varda? Because I'm... I, I, I will. Will. You will? Okay, perfect. Awesome. All right. I'll, so, yeah, I'll talk a bit about uh, Future Present, which is um, maybe, uh, I don't know if you guys talked about this last year, at last year's BIF. Um, I know there was some writing up on it, but uh, the uh, Future Present program is a, uh, sorry, were you going to say something, Sean? Oh, we didn't do a podcast last year at BIF. Oh, okay, cool. Okay. Um, so, I would just give a very quick little bit of backdrop. Uh, traditionally, Canadian film selection at the Vancouver International Film Festival has been a very, 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 very hit or mess affair as far as uh, even even coming up to a, a basic standard of reflecting what is actually happening in the in Canada as far as Canadian cinema, what what's happening, what's new and exciting in Canadian cinema. And uh, last year, the the Future Present program uh, was launched. Um, in order to kind of uh, to, to take on this task of, of searching out what is new, what are, what are the new upcoming works? And, and this, this program is basically the reason why um, people know who Sofia Bodanovich is, as we discussed earlier with her film Maison de Bonheur. Uh, her film, she had some shorts in her feature Never Eat Alone premiered last year in this program. And um, uh, to, to quite a bit of acclaim. Um, anyway, there's a selection of, uh, I think it's about eight films um, this year, similar to last year. And uh, it's, a, I mean, it's a very exciting initiative for anyone who's trying to follow what is in Canadian cinema. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting work happening um, in different pockets of the country, particularly in Toronto, uh, as always. And this year, there was a real, also last year with, with films like um, Ashley McKenzie's Werewolf, there, there's a lot of good things happening in Nova Scotia as well, on the Far East Coast. Uh, hopefully things will, will sort of get up to speed here on the West Coast. Uh, I'm uh, involved with the film community here in uh, Vancouver, and I'm sure, and, and I know we all kind of hope to, um, to get some stuff going 
uh, to the same level as the other communities. Anyway, so just to give you a little backdrop, like things, there are some exciting things happening, but it's often difficult to get that in front of festival audiences, even at a major uh, national film festival that's supposed to be devoted to profiling uh, your national cinema. Um, so we've already mentioned Maison de Bonheur. I think that was the standard of the program for me. Another one was um, Fail to Appear, which is a film by Antoine Bourges, uh, a Toronto filmmaker uh, who spent some time here in Vancouver. He made a uh, sort of a mid-length film called East Hastings Pharmacy about five years ago, um, which uh, was kind of a blurring of uh, documentary and, and uh, fiction. Uh, it might have been an all-documentary. I'm not exactly clear, but it kind of falls into that gray area that uh, a number of um, a number of uh, I don't know realism directors kind of fall into. Uh, anyway, Fail to Appear is a very it's an excellent uh, debut film about um, a social worker uh, played by uh, Derek Campbell, who is a um, kind of the uh, almost you could say like the Anna Karina of like the uh, Toronto film scene. Uh, I don't know if I'm ripping off someone else when I say that. I feel like I read that elsewhere, but if not, I, I anyway, said, she, I said uh, the Parker Posey or Steve Buscemi or Greta Gerwig. Okay, well, my <laughs> mind's pick, pick one. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, she, she's uh, she's everywhere in in the uh, indie, the very indie indie world of Toronto cinema. All the exciting things happening in Toronto cinema, and she's also where I worked with Matthew uh, Porterfield. Um, on films like it used to uh, used to be darker. Um, anyway, it's she plays a social worker who is assigned to a case file of a, a, a man who uh, failed to appear for a court date, and he's been you know put back in jail basically for violating the terms of his uh, his bail. Um, and uh, and basically, it's this uh, intersection where we start with her. Uh, dealing with all the paperwork and the office bureaucracy and just her trying to navigate, do her job, you know, caring for those people in her charge within this bureaucracy. And, and then eventually she meets up with, with uh, this new case um, and struggles to kind of connect with him at a level that will allow him to, you know, uh, basically not fall back into the same patterns uh you know, there's a, there's a history of mental illness. Uh, there's a um, complicating things, and and from the point where they intersect, the film actually um, seems to be setting up this kind of uh, you know this two person like you know kind of drama where you know you watch these two people bounce off each other, um, and it doesn't actually go down that road. It, it ends up when we're introduced to the case, this uh, this gentleman who. She's assigned to, you know, they, they spend some time together uh, getting to know each other as, as she, um, you know, gets him out of jail and, and gets him familiar with his situation and then ends up, uh, the film ends up following him home to, uh, to where his parents live in the suburbs and just follow, we just kind of follow the rest of his day. Um, so it's, it's a film that is very much interested in how people fall through the cracks of uh, even the most well-meaning, you know, sort of human agencies. Uh, especially in a in a country like Canada, you know, which sort of prides itself on on public health care and being able to to help those in need um, to a certain extent more than than other countries uh, near us. There's Stop uh, depressing me, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, it's uh, it's a very you know sobering kind of um, uh, honest account of how. Uh, the system fails you. The system fails people. The system is not equipped to 
to deal with um, the realities of mental illness or even just um, human nature. And uh, it's, it's very sensitively made, beautifully shot, very, very sort of a, uh, you know, in a, in a style that's very familiar to the, tra- the current trauma film scene. Like anyone who's seen a film that has come out of the, the MDFF uh, sort of world, that's the um, company that uh, started by Kazakh Radwanski and Dan Montgomery and produces all of their films. Um, I'd say their aesthetic, which is this very kind of uh, very close to documentary kind of um, realism, a lot of wide shots, or very um, uh, it's 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 hard to I'm having trouble describing it right now, but it's kind of instantly recognizable uh, as this very this very you know kind of like reserved but uh, non-commercial style of cinema. Um, he but said very that he's, he said that he had uh, like the whole like cast and crew watch. Uh, Frederick Wiseman's welfare, and oh really? That, that was wow. that's what he was going for, and and especially like the early scenes are very kind of Wiseman esque, like these long yeah. static shots and you know cutting around the, the office as people are working. It's 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 very obvious when once once he says Wiseman, he's like, oh yeah, that, yeah, that's what that is. Yeah, and and, and there's even these these wonderful scenes of. Uh, of um, him filming with actual um, people who are served by the agency, people with uh, addictions or various issues in their, and that they're working to overcome. And he basically films like a group therapy, uh, group check-in session, um, you know, uh, that, that just, yeah, it has that kind of, again, kind of like Mila, I guess that's my theme for this podcast, is these films that kind of skate between realism and documentary back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not really my jam per se, but uh, uh, it's, a, it's a great example of when that, that um, approach works really well at capturing this kind of ephemeral human, um, you know, reality, this connection on screen. I just want to highlight a couple others just because this this program, um, uh, Mass for Shut-ins was a it was a film that I um, I don't know if anyone else saw it. Maybe Sean. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> okay. I, I, yeah, prom- I promised uh, Adam I would watch it eventually. Okay, it's uh, it's kind of an extraordinary film. It's not. It's one that I failed to connect with, to be honest. Uh, but it's it's driven by an aesthetic vision that is absolutely unique. And it, like the, the the film I thought of while watching it actually was Leviathan, the Casting Taylor Paravel uh, film about the fishing boats, um, because it, it it takes a very it's 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 almost like a film that was shot by a you know someone completely completely uninterested or unaccustomed to like the, the basic um, conventions of like humanistic cinema. Cause you are dealing with a story of a, a young man who is living with his grandfather and he's a, uh, it's a story of you know, rural poverty in Nova Scotia, um, you know, sort of uh, very difficult uh, living circumstances, uh, the sense of no, no real sense of um, momentum or, moving beyond that and it's a very dysfunctional family atmosphere as well so this is a kind of setting that's very familiar to certain festival audiences um but it's approached with this this aesthetic uh, that that is just very very it just literally unfolds moment to moment in front of you without any real kind of pattern or schema uh that you can track it's it's almost inventing itself in front of you and you know that results in some extremely striking compositions and some that are, are very uh kind of befuddling but it's it's kind of an extraordinary experience on on that count. Um, I do think it's not quite as uh, formed as it as it could be. Uh, it's 
it uh, it feels very shapeless and 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 sort of impossible in some ways to even discern what is happening um, in, in the, the very small narrative that is happening. But it's the kind of film that I guess it's grown on me since I watched it. Uh, you're not going to see anywhere else. It's the kind of film that this program is is really meant to highlight. It's the kind of film that's not going to end up at TIFF. Uh, you know, which is supposed to be the place where all Canadians want to premiere their work. Um, and so I, I guess I just want to shout out this, you know, VIF for having this uh, this program again for a second year, and hopefully many more to come, uh, because it is actually doing a genuine service in, in um, highlighting uh, new Canadian cinema that, that has nowhere, no one really championing it. Um, and there's others I could talk about, but those are were, those were kind of the... Uh, major highlights um one last one still still night still light was a film again i kind of struggled to connect with it but I, I did appreciate that it was uh it's a very sort of sensitively observed uh film on on many ways it's about a young woman who struggling to find meaning after tragedy in her life after she lost her parents and kind of unfolds through her life and the story of these two other people that one person she's connected to, she's nannying for another, and then like this guy's father, basically. So it kind of spins off into these tangents that make kind of less and less um, sense as they go on. <laughs> but uh, the first like a lot of, of the, the films, first half of that is really is really good when it's just about her. The other guys it's, are it's, less interesting. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, I wandered quite a bit during her segment as well. I, I felt like there were individual vignettes from that, like. There's a scene where she uh, she plays like a, a princess, like she she's a princess for hire for birthday parties. And so there's a really wonderful uh, you know one take scene where she basically, or almost one take where she she's at a children's birthday party in character as the princess from uh, Frozen, and it's you know it, it's it's just very wonderfully like observed <laughs> sort of dynamics there. But then once once she goes off on her own, it kind of falls into a lot of the um, kind of I think you know, a character who's kind of lost in their own, you know, unseen agony kind of um, cliches in a lot of ways. Uh, even though there's, there's some very well-observed, like, I think, dialogues between her and people she encounters, uh, that's that's quite quite resonant in some ways, but it's, I guess, like, a number of films you see a program like this, it's, it's kind of, it's striking to see um, a voice emerge, but it's like, we're not quite all there yet, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think uh, I'm. I was so glad for the future program, future present program this year. I think I think this year's program is even better than than last year's. And if if it wasn't there, this would have been like a really depressing VIF. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind of a, it's kind of a down year for cinema in general worldwide. And there's like a bunch of scheduling and distribution problems that led to a lot of uh, films that, that we all were, were greatly anticipating not being at the festival, but, uh, being able to discover stuff like, like fail to appear or, or Maison de Bonheur at, at a film festival is, is, uh, it's so much more fun than like ragging on, on, uh, Palme d'Or winners. <laughs> I don't know. That's kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah, Fail to Appear was was my second favorite as well. I didn't see Mass for Shut-ins. Uh, prototype is the yeah. I was gonna say we oh, haven't yeah, talked about yeah. Prototype, yeah, which the, is um, the three D experience. Blake Williams movie that's trying to melt your brain and does a pretty good job <laughs> of it. Uh, 
that is a really cool movie and uh, uh, Forest movie by uh, Matthew Taylor Blay, a uh, local Vancouver filmmaker, was uh, very def de divisive at the festival, I think. Uh, a lot of people uh, had very strong negative feelings about it, but I liked it. I liked it too, yeah. yeah. I liked I it a lot. Seattle is like the, the you guys are the champions. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think it, I think it was a, a really strong program this year, and I haven't even seen Master Shut-Ins yet, so... That's great. Um, um, go did you want to talk about Black Cop quickly, Sean? Because I know you saw that as well. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, that one, Black Cop is fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, about, uh, it's about a cop who is, uh, who, uh, is black and uh, uh, has <laughs> no political consciousness at all. He, has, he sees no qualms about being you know, just an obnoxious police officer, uh, until one night he is racially profiled by another cop. And then the mm -hmm. next morning he's, he's so upset by this, but that he goes on a, on a kind of like low key, you know, Canadian version of a rampage where he like is, is mean to white people <laughs> in like ironic ways, but doesn't actually like hurt anybody. That, oh, some bruises and stuff, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> If it was like an American film, like it would have been like like Bad Lieutenant like or something. That. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's it's a Canadian cop. So yeah, I mean it's it's fine. It's got it's got some good ideas. I I felt like it kinda uh kinda went out in the satire and yeah. And having everybody like end up being nice and coming to like some understanding instead of, you know, setting Canada on fire or something. Yeah, and it's kind of a hodgepodge, and, and sort of it's, um, I guess, like there's a sort of like this, the Spike Lee elements and the, the sort of like the vaudeville kind of uh, inspired or satirical asides of like, you know, a guy ending up on a dark stage, breaking the fourth wall um, commentary. Yeah. You know, it's it's a very, you know, model, it, it models its aesthetics and its politics after very kind of familiar work in this vein, um, yeah, I thought, which I found I, I, a little disappointing. Yeah, I thought that I thought the actor who who played the black cop he's he's never named he's just he's black cop, uh, yeah. uh, Ronnie Rowe Jr. I thought I thought he was really good. I thought it was very strong. Yeah, he's good. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it it's does, the movie is fine. I just kind of I wanted I want my satire to be, you know, extreme. <laughs> I just found it. Just the last thing I'll say about this uh, is that uh, the the short film version of this, which I think was, I guess, I presume was made to raise money for the feature, uh, played at VIF last year. And it's interesting that I think everything that really, really is provocative and strong in the feature is basically was already in the short to begin with. Uh, the short doesn't have any context. It just starts. It's entirely shot from like a cop style body cam. Mm -hmm. kind of thing and it's just uh this guy who you never see until the very very end uh going on this mile, this, this canadian rampage um but it's very it's you know without context it's incredibly abrasive and i think far more kind of effective at, at making its point um as whereas the feature is is you know trying to tell more of a narrative it's trying to empathize trying to you know create a character who we sort of understand his transition from from a to b and it just feels so much i guess watered down in some ways like the, yeah. the the shockingness that it's trying to go for just isn't there. 
the the inciting incident is is kind of is kind of weak and it i mean it it might have had more force but probably not if it hadn't also been like a plot on a Brooklyn Nine-Nine episode last year <laughs> <laughs> where where Terry Crews is racially profiled and is very upset about this, but he does not go on an ironic rampage. So I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's fine. It, it, it's a good movie. I, uh, the, uh, the short Scaffold I, I liked quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was by... Uh, uh, Kazak Radvansky about uh, are they Polish like construction workers working in all you ever see? Croatian, I think. Croatian. Okay. All you see are their hands as they're like doing they're like repairing a window or something in some lady's house. There's a couple of jobs that they do. Um, Yeah. I thought that was nice. Yeah, it's a nice nice film. It felt really strong, especially like it it felt like really well suited like to the short format. Like it, yeah. it did exactly what it needed to do and then it ended. I, I really like that like sense of economy in multiple senses at the term, I guess. Yeah, that <laughs> that was the kind of gimmick I could get more on board with than than Canibo. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that one should have been a short. <laughs> I mean I think I think Canibo actually would have been much better as a short than, than a feature. Yeah. But agree to disagree. (laughs) (laughs) All right, uh, moving on from Canada, Uh, Ryan. Uh, I'm going to talk about the new uh, the new Anya's Varda documentary, uh, co-directed with the visual artist JR, called Faces Places. Um, uh, This this is an interesting case that it's basically uh, based around. Farda and JR as they go around uh, France in I think 2016 or or maybe 2015 uh, they they uh, they go around taking pictures of various uh, denizens of various villages around the the countryside and like photograph them and uh, print them out and paste them large onto the side of buildings. Um, this is the uh, JR. The visual artist. This is like his uh, preferred method of expression, and he's uh, so mysterious that no one actually knows his real identity or his name. Like he, he always wears these uh, dark glasses and hats uh, in a manner that Varda says is reminiscent of Godard. And it, I'm still not sure why I love this film so much. It was my favorite of the festival, and. It's just there's so much uh, compassion in the way that they interact with each other, like this uh, octogenarian uh, legend of the cinema and this uh, new director um, and who whose identity isn't even known. They just have this such a uh, such a nice rapport and the way that they interact with the people that they take the photographs of is just. Uh, so empathetic and very recognizable, but very difficult to to really uh, express um, in a, such a fascinating way. And the um, it like just goes until the, this climax, which I won't really reveal. That 
that even though you could say it might be telegraphed, but it still feels like the exact right way to uh, end the whole thing on. And it's just such a wonderful film. Like I, I can't really, uh, I'm still not entirely sure why it's, it moved me so much, but it's, well, I don't know. How, yeah. I don't know how you could not be uh, moved by it. It's just like, so full of life. And I mean, mm. I think Varda is like the, the anti sons of Hanukkah. Uh, <laughs> you know, like she's yeah. just, everything is about her interest in people. And mm. she has this way of making, of making people, I think so comfortable in her presence that, you know, people who may just appear to be, you know, sort of ordinary, um, you know, potentially uninteresting people. She finds a way to open them up just by her her own openness uh, mm-hmm. and, and make them intriguing uh, subjects because she finds them so interesting. And I think that spirit of Varda's is um, wedded. So I had never heard of JR before this, but it is wedded so well to to his project and, and his interests and his desire to, you know, figure literally and figuratively magnify um, these people. Yeah, it's an exceedingly uh, lovely and and very, very funny uh, movie. Yeah, they're just a a very strong, like, uh, almost like they, it's almost like a mother and son relationship at some points. Um, uh, But like, there's, they always find like this exact right balance between like, playfulness sincerity like it never comes off as like uh, completely saccharine or uh like or even even fake like it just feels so alive and real there's there's they're so nice and there's so much warmth like the the conceit of the film like these these two famous artists traveling the countryside and making giant posters of working class people that they find in small villages could be like really condescending or really insulting, but it's, you never even get like an inkling of that because they're so genuinely, genuinely like curious about other people and the world around them that like there's, there's never any sense of, of mockery or, or anything like that. Like it's just unthinkable. They're, they're so mm-hmm. nice. That's well, and I like the way that 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 project that they have that like that. I think there's even a way in which even if the movie wasn't, or the movie's not like condescending at all. But even if the movie wasn't condescending, but was in the hands of of I think less talented uh, filmmakers, it might just be at least for me a little bit uh, almost insufferably nice. But there's a a way in which they're like the movie features these scenes early on where they're discussing sort of the process by which they're going to make the movie. And I think I I really left with the overwhelming sense um, that they really wedded that, uh, that sort of ethos into the way they actually constructed the movie. And I think there's something about the niceness uh, actually like being an aesthetic choice beyond just their sort of personal affect um, that has uh, lingered with me, and I find that uh, that approach uh, interesting. Right. Yeah, I read an interview with them uh, that I think that when they originally set out to do like this project of pasting the the people of uh, taking pictures, um, that they actually had intended to make a feature length film. Uh, Varda hadn't made a film since two thousand eight, The Beaches of Anius, which I think she said at the time was intended to be her last feature. Um, but like as they went along, it just like 
slowly built itself together and like it demanded this uh this feature length uh project and it just it has that feeling of collaboration of things coming together um at each point like each point has builds until like it goes on to the next thing and in the general sense of the of the whole venture yeah it's so it's so it's neatly constructed it it builds up to this great climax yet you you kind of could see it just going on forever like i i want it to be a tv series where they just travel (laughs) countryside (laughs) Like who would not want a buddy comedy with with these two? Their their interactions, they're they're and they're not always nice. Like they argue a lot, and he's always like poking fun at her, and it's it's really funny. And and they're just they're great together. Well, yeah, and I, I love the way they sort of interrogate each other's like prescribed roles in the movie too. Like a lot of the the sort of joking at each other's expense is about how. He's always sort of, uh, you know, playing up his like spirited young man shtick, and she's like the, you know, wise old woman. Um, <laughs> and the movie's very, very smart about how it uh, allows you to sort of take pleasure in, in them occupying those roles, but then uh, sort of shows that that they're also performing uh, in a way. Yeah, and, and yeah, and- the the fact that they like disagree about what they're going to do at different places like they they have arguments they have they try out different ideas things don't always work out and it's just you know but they share this goal of making you know the film and the artworks that they're making yeah it's great yeah and it's uh like it's nice uh, i hadn't actually seen another uh like a Varda film before this, but um, besides, like, like at the beginning, like the, when they first meet, they they mention like their mutual appreciation for their each other's work. But besides that, it's it never feels beholden to be like self-referential in a way that something like so uh, deeply involved with the creation of art might. Like, it never feels uh, self-congratulatory. It just mm-hmm. exists and it feels so alive and in the moment. Yeah, and at the at the same time, it's like it's very personal for for Varda, at least. Mm-hmm. Like, there's references to Jacques Demy. There's like friends who were who were photographers and and models, and then uh, you know Godard, of course. But uh, yeah. and her eyesight is uh, is failing through the process of this film. So, and mm-hmm. like part of it is that uh, that they're taking pictures of things that she soon won't be able to see. So it has that. It has that like almost a race against time element to it, which makes it even more moving. Yeah. Do you guys know what kind of distribution this has? I'm um, to see it. Cohen Media Group is releasing it, so I think it's coming out this year. Pretty sure it'll come to okay. Yeah, I'm. I'm sure it'll be out here. It's a, It's such a. Uh, it's a crowd pleaser. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. like I can't imagine people not liking this movie. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I can think of a couple. But... <laughs> <laughs> no. I was Sick, reading them dark at souls. I, I read a comment from Tiff. I won't say who, but it was essentially you online. You say Sagawa probably wouldn't like this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, read, I read a comment at Tiff that that was along the lines of "It's the usual Varda nice stuff." Like. It was just kind of dismissive in that sense. I was like, okay, not a surprise, but like, <laughs> yeah. anyway. 
Oh Hum, another nice movie by a great filmmaker. <laughs> Yawn. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Sean. All right, yeah, so uh, in picking Claire's camera earlier, I accidentally picked the last movie that Melissa had seen, so. <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. I, I did I did realize that I have seen, like, Top of the Lake, which was at VIF. Oh, you should talk about I that. Mean, I don't, okay, well, yeah. <laughs> we're having a little long, so I don't want to, like, if anybody's still listening, but yeah, I, um, so this is the the second um, in the first series, Top of the Lake, um, and it's following the same character, Robin Griffin, who is a, a police officer. Um, the first series was set in rural um, New Zealand, this kind of gorgeous um, setting that was sort of in the middle of the nowhere. And this um, time, it's it's been uh, the location is Sydney, Australia, so it's this kind of um, gritty downtown sort of police station, but you're also right on the, the ocean, the water. So there's, um, she's kind of ties in the idea of the water with that too. But this is um, a film or I don't know, called a film or a TV series. It's six hours. Um, I guess a six hour movie, if you want to call it a movie. Um, but it, it really ties into, if you know Campion films or if you've seen Campion films, this is Campion, uh, teasing out and playing with similar ideas and similar characters, um, but continuing to do it in interesting, I think, in unique ways. Um, so it's sort of about, um, I guess, gender dynamics and power dynamics. Um, ostensibly, the, the film is following another uh, crime case. So it's, it's a sort of a police procedural, but a police procedural that only like Campion can do. So in the the same way that something like In the Cut was kind of uh, about a, a crime, but not really that completely interested necessarily in detective work or how detective work really works. I feel like this is um, similar uh, in that way. And I, I do think that people kind of uh, maybe are drawn to the idea of, oh yeah, I love police procedurals, but then you get a Jane Campion police procedural and it's not really what you were um, expecting. Um, again, in part because it doesn't really follow necessarily the rules that you would think it would follow. And she kind of deals in this, a lot of it is this very gritty, realistic kind of stuff, but it's also in a way hyper-realized. So you have these certain characters that seem quite over the top in some ways and seem like stereotypes, but then there are also these moments that feel um, so genuine and so tied to something real, like something that you've seen. Um, so some of the um, scenes with the interactions between the men and women and the way that this woman police detective is in the middle of this very male world, it's kind of similar exploration to something like Silence of the Lambs is, uh, uh, was where you have this woman who is set in the middle of this very masculine world that is very misogynistic in, in many ways. And yet Campion never really just goes to the easy thing of all men are bad and all women are good. Um, she really makes it very complex. So you, she often has, she'll always have a, a male character who you kind of hate, but then she develops out this character um, in such a way that you begin to 
sympathize with him or you kind of understand him and understand why women are drawn to him. So she's also very interested in this idea of desire um, and how that interacts with the, the power dynamics that um, are involved between men and women. And so there is a character, male character like that in this um, series where he's completely awful and yet you also kind of understand why all these women are gathered around him and he in, in some way you can understand why they feel empowered being with him even though he's completely terrible <laughs> on one level um and then uh, so i i love jane campion i mean everything that she's done i absolutely love and this is kind of no um exception to that the cinematography is um beautiful um and the performances are great they're kind of in, in the similar they're sort of over the top but also very grounded in a way so you um so Elizabeth Moss, who plays the, the main character, is great. Um, Nicole Kidman is in it. She has a relatively minor role, which apparently is supposed to be more minor than it was. Um, Nicole Kidman asked if she could be in the series, and Jane Campion said sure, and gave her a small part. And Nicole read, Kidman read it and said, you have to make it a bigger part. <laughs> so <laughs> Campion actually wrote it uh, a bigger part for her because she she asked her that. Um, Jane Campion's daughter, real-life daughter, is actually also in the film, and she's great um, playing the daughter of um, Nicole Kidman. There's a lot of um, mother-daughter stuff going on in this, too, kind of parent-child sort of things. There's a lot about grief and loss and pregnancy, and it's... I, it's it's really hard to summarize in <laughs> um, just a, a few sentences, but again, if you like Jane Campion, you will love this because it's great. And I, I, I have I have had some friends who haven't watched any Jane Campion, and they really have liked the Top of the Lake series. So maybe it's a good place to start with Campion. I don't I I don't know, but you kind of can't you shouldn't go in expecting it to be just a police procedural because you'll be frustrated, and you can't expect it to be just realistic because it's not the characters are too kind of outlandish for that. Um, but, oh, and I also should say that Campion always has, she is so funny. She has such a black, dark sense of humor that I think a lot of people really miss. I mean, even in something like the piano, which people think is very, uh, you know, um, just so heartrending and harrowing. And yet it, that has some very funny elements in it too. And this is also has some very, very funny elements that also can turn on a dime to, to be completely moving at the same time. So I would definitely recommend it. And um, yeah, I wish I could have seen it on the big screen. Um, I think they played all six hours with a couple 15 minute intermissions. But, they did, um, they did I'm sure it looked gorgeous. Oh, okay. Did yeah. any of you guys see it? No. Or part of it? So no. No, I'd like to see it. I like the original uh, series. So. Yeah. I have it. it. It already aired on... IFC here. Uh, Sundance, Sundance, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I have it. Yeah. I have it saved on the on the DVR, but uh, we're way yeah. behind it's, to the television. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once you start watching, it's pretty easy to keep keep going. Um, but yeah, it's a time commitment too. Yeah. Right on. So I guess I will I will finish up and and I will I will cheat. By talking about two movies uh, <laughs> uh, that are um, that I, that I think are are uh, are um, on the surface don't seem to have anything in common, but I actually think they're they're kind of the most uh, politically inspiring 
films of the year. Uh, and that is uh, 120 beats per minute, which is uh, Robin P uh, Campillo's uh, film about ACT UP Paris in the early 90s, uh, working to uh, uh, protest the French government's uh, silence on the HIV crisis and the drug companies uh, very slowly releasing uh, drugs, which would uh, ultimately... Uh, help uh, mitigate that crisis uh, somewhat. Uh, and uh, Bad Genius, which is about uh, high school students in Thailand who have like an elaborate scheme to cheat on standardized tests. Uh, <laughs> nice. Uh, uh, Beats Per Minute, I think, is, uh, is, is very obviously a, a political film. It's about like the power of direct action and it's got these, uh, it's very neatly structured in these kind of uh, 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 segments that, that recur in like a pattern throughout the film. There's, there'll be like a demonstration that's filmed like a suspense sequence. So it reminded me a lot of like the scenes in, in Nocturama, like where uh, the activists like break into a drug company's office and start like spraying like fake blood everywhere um, that's, that are very suspenseful and exciting. And then there are, are scenes of, of like the meetings where, where everyone is like arguing over tactics, what they should do, brainstorming slogans for the upcoming like uh, pride parade, uh, stuff like that. They're the very kind of nuts and bolts of, of political activism. Uh, and then there are, there's like this personal story, a romance between, between two activists that, that kind of, is like the emotional through line of, of the whole film. Um, but the movie seemed, seemed to me to kind of directly contradict uh, Nocturama, which is another film about, uh, which we talked about on, on the one of the SIF podcasts that we did, uh, which is about young people of, of the same age, but of the current moment who are attempting some kind of direct action, but have no ideology and no idea what to do or uh, what to do once they have uh, acted. They just end up lost in a shopping mall. Uh, whereas this shows like the value of having like an actual organization with goals and a plan and you know a movement that is actually working to accomplish a thing. Uh, I, liked, I liked this much more than that. Uh, Bad Genius is just like an like an incredibly exciting film about taking tests uh, that is also uh, not so I mean maybe it's subtle maybe it's not but it's about the ways that the uh, the rich kids in this uh, elite private school in in Thailand exploit the smart kids who are there on scholarship so it's the, the the rich exploiting the the labor of of these these this poor underclass of kids, and there there are two main uh, uh, students that are providing the answers to all of their classmates in exchange for money. Uh, one of them uh, becomes like completely blind. He's like trapped within the system. He can't see any way out. He becomes like totally corrupted by capital and just wants more and more money. Uh, the other one, who is kind of the the moral center of the film, she's our our main protagonist. Uh, eventually, sees like some way out. She imagines a way out of this capitalist system where labor is constantly being exploited. Um, 
and that's where the film kind of re gets its uh, where it uh, has a kind of moralizing conclusion, which uh, a number of, of uh, commentators I've seen have found off-putting. But but to me, it makes the whole thing work because she's the only one who is able to like break out of the system and see uh, put her her own value on things rather than a monetary value. So I don't know. I've yeah. I spent like the whole time I was in Vancouver reading about the, the Frankfurt school. So maybe it's kind of coloring my interpretation of <laughs> these films, but, uh, that's those to me, like seem two of like two of the most important films of the year. Yeah. I mean, I, I really liked, um, 120 beats per minute. Um, maybe not as much as you did. And, uh, I think the movie has this, um, I think you described the movie well in that it has these alternating blocks between their action and their sort of planning and, and theorizing in their meetings. But there are also these segments um, that recur throughout the film of them going to these like nightclubs and having these uh, dance sequences, which sort of break out into more um, abstract territory like there's a sequence where they're dancing in a club and the sort of dust that's floating in the in the light um transforms into um like cells and, and dna um and uh the movie i think at the very end does what i had sort of hoped it would do uh, all along which i think is really bridge the the more uh expressionistic uh sequences of them in the nightclub with the with the political action and um i think the movie maybe is just a tad uh long for me but um when it finally sort of reached that moment where the those two strands of the movie synthesized uh in a way and uh sort of showed like you're saying sean the in some ways the hollowness of, of nakarama and shows that that activism like can be this like intoxicating party but also like really have some ideology at its core and, and a real purpose and, and mission. That final sequence in the film is um, uh, what really sold me on it. So I, I kind of would like to see it again to uh, experience the way it sort of builds to that that moment because that was sort of what I was was hoping it would do uh, all along. Yeah, I mean, I think those those dance sequences are uh, kind of like the imaginative heart of the film. They're like they're the ideal that the activists are working towards where like everyone is accepted. There's no homophobia. There's no fear of, of death. I mean, it's just this like pure, like sensate, happy place, uh, that there's no ideal like that in, in Nocturama. They can't imagine they're, they're so mm -hmm. kind of trapped within the, the capitalist system that they can't imagine a space like that. And that's why they can't work mm -hmm. towards it. There's some pretty fast, uh, fantastic dancing in, uh, in Nocturama. Commodified dancing. <laughs> <laughs> Here they're dancing and, and throwing ashes on, uh, yeah. like, stuck-up uh, like pharmaceutical uh, executives. So. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Nathan, you saw Bad Genius as well, right? Yeah, yeah, I loved it. Um, I don't know how much of it exactly kind of will stay with me. It's such a pure pulp experience. 
Um, but it's, uh, it's extraordinary watching with a full house, uh, uh, just, and, um, I was, it's the most kind of pure, like just white knuckle film I've seen in ages. Uh, and, and there's a point late in the film when it's really just pushing that to as, as far as it can go. And and you forget that you're watching a film about like high school students rigging their SATs. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. It's just a very, it's a, it's an extremely like pleasurable, visceral experience. Um, and the, and, and with that, you know, and the subtext of the exploitation and the sort of the aspirations of, um, a non first world, you know, economy trying to like work against the, I guess you say like the, the G eight kind of system that, um, is arrayed against against them and sort of staring their their hopes and aspirations in the face, staring them down. Um, it's quite, you know, poignant and and there's, there's quite a bit there, um, you know, beneath the the hijinks. Yeah, I mean, you you wouldn't expect the best action film of the festival to be about test taking when there's a a Samohan choreographed uh, <laughs> <laughs> movie. Uh, playing, which which I quite liked actually. I liked it. I liked it more than than you did, Evan. But uh, yeah, uh, SPL Paradox is uh, mm-hmm. not as suspenseful as as Bad Genius. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, Bad Genius was like uh, it's like the most perfect Edgar Wright kind of style thing ever. Like I, I do like Edgar Wright, but sometimes his imitators drive me insane, and and sometimes he drives me insane a little bit. Um, but, but Bad Genius is like kind of all the best things about his high octane kind of thing, just like perfected. It's, it's a really just, um, I mean, from a purely formal perspective, it's, it's, it's it's an absolutely pristine kind of gem in that sense. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's just, yeah. Yeah. Kind of. I, I'm, I'm like, I'm trying to think of, of what it reminds me of because it's not really Edgar Wright because that's more kind of satire but yeah. I know I know exactly what you're saying but I can't think of a, a proper analog to it because nobody in nobody in Hollywood makes movies this competent <laughs> well actually it's funny I watched, I, watched days, uh, yeah. I watched Panic Room right after the, the day after actually and I'd never seen Panic Room before it was my only Fincher like gap and I was absolutely I don't know I found like a lot actually in some ways, Bad Genius reminds me of Fincher in his pure action mode, like wherein there's this this is supreme absolute clarity to every single like shot. It's this kind of perfect contraption, yeah, um, with, without any of like the kind of moody heaviness that you get with Fincher, though. Well, that's the thing. Like Panic Room isn't. I guess there is a bit of mood, but it's it's such a like contraption film, like like just gliding, gliding, like just the sort of crazy. It's it's almost like Spielbergian in its economy. Um, yeah, but the, the sort of sense of clarity. I don't know. I don't. Know. I, I I just think of like liqueur for some reason as like a analog, but it's like extremely smooth, like sharp stuff. So yeah, it's great. It's it's a lot of fun. Okay. Uh, anybody have anything else? Because we are we're over two hours now. <laughs> We've covered <laughs> by my count. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, Anyone six, listening seven, still? <laughs> <laughs> I just want to shout out quickly Wonderstruck, which, uh, you know, um, I'm, I haven't seen a, I'm not a huge Ton Hayden's uh, person per se. I like most of what I've seen, but 
I, I quite liked it, and I thought it was a, a really, I don't know, just a very chill, beautiful kind of uh, uh, film that doesn't quite come together, but it's got so much heart that, it, like, there's there's just so, there is a lot happening that that uh, it's kind of impossible to hold it against it. Right on. Uh, uh, I'm looking forward to that one. I get to see it next week, so. Sweet. Yeah. Uh, the Florida Project. Um that played in fifth, right? It did. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the I saw that actually before fifth, um, but uh, there, there's like oh, from the director of Tangerine, and like I do prefer Tangerine a little bit, and like at, and it's interesting to see him work in this sort of languorous summer summertime mood, um, but like there, there's a lot to to marvel at, and like the ending is, I think like maybe the most transcendent moment I've had watching a film uh, this year um, and quite understandably it has uh, already become very very divisive um, but I absolutely adored it and so it, it's a very surprising film in, in some ways uh, Paradox Paradox has the best fights of the year so far, and there's a rooftop chase with Tony Jaw that is as good as anything that Tony Jaw has ever done. So nice. that that alone is worth is worth seeing. He has a very small part in the movie, but this one sequence is 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 worth it. <coughs> Evan, do you have any final thoughts? Paradox is fine. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, I think uh, it's time for us all to go to sleep. Uh, <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> thank you all for uh, for coming on the podcast and talking about VIF and uh, for writing about VIF at Seattle Screen Scene. Uh, and thanks uh, to everyone out there who actually listened to all of this. Or at least fast forwarded <laughs> through to the end where we say thank you for listening. <laughs> Uh, that's, right. that's the best part someone just fast forwarded all the way <laughs> uh, I, I do not know when there will be another episode of the Francis Farmer show I think it kind of depends on when uh, Melissa finishes reading Last of the Mohicans that's right any, any day now it'll happen any day uh, maybe, maybe we'll do something at the end of the year I, I, I really haven't thought that far ahead yet but uh but thanks to you all. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye.